One of my favorite albums is an album of Willie Nelson and Johnny Cash called the VH1 Storytellers album. VH1 was this music channel, I don't know if it still exists. <laughs> But in 1998, or 1997, Johnny Cash and Willie Nelson were on this show where they, they exchanged songs, they told little stories about the song. And this is at the end of their careers, or kind of. I mean, Willie Nelson's still alive somehow and, and, and doing shows, but Johnny Cash was only a few years away from his death. So this is at the end of their careers. And, uh, you know, they've established themselves and who they are. They have a whole body of work to represent their, their career. But at one point, Willie Nelson says, as he's looking around the stage at what's on the stage, the drinks that are there, he says, we've got water, we've got chocolate, or hot chocolate, we've got coffee. What will they say about our image? Now, this, this means something for Willie Nelson and Johnny Cash because they were known for a while as the leaders of outlaw country. They united the, the rednecks and the hippies in one group of, of rebels in the, in the 70s. They were known for their transgressive nature, at least for a while, right? But at this point, they become just kind of gray-haired old men, uh, kind of almost, in a way, statesmen uh, of country music. And so it's funny to think of them worrying about their image at that stage. I don't think that you know, image is something most of us give much conscious concern about. Right? We think of that, that is the domain of like rock stars and maybe young people who are worried about how they look today, right? And yet, it still creeps in from time to time, right? We worry about what will they think of us? What kind of image am I projecting at work? What, what kind of a legacy am I leaving? In a sense, our image is pretty close to the question, who am I? And it can be really tempting to try to build that image, to try to gain some glory for ourselves and try to make sure that, that no crack in the image appears that would undermine that glory, what people think of us. And you might wonder how we can work against that. It's a very human thing to do, to cultivate your image, even if we don't think about our image in the way that maybe Willie Nelson was thinking about it that night. How can we work against it? I want to maintain this morning that one of those profound ways we work against trying to preserve our own image is by joining a church like this one. In this church, by God's grace, our image is put way down to the bottom. But by God's grace, we seek to worship Christ, who is the image of the invisible God. We seek to have our, our own identities in some ways subsumed under the identity and lordship of Christ, and to proclaim Christ and his kingdom. And so in that way, joining a church is the one of the most countercultural things you can do. It says, I'm no longer seeking the ways of the world. I am seeking the glory of Christ. I begin with that long, circuitous introduction because Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon was very concerned about his own image. Not only was he concerned about his image, but he actually constructs an image, a statue, probably not of himself, but of something that represents his power and authority, probably one of his gods. And as we'll see, he's very concerned that his people, all the people of the empire that he ruled over, bow down and worship 
his image. As we look at this passage this morning, Daniel chapter 3, we're going to look at how how Nebuchadnezzar pursues his image, how he chases his own glory, and then we'll look at how God reveals his glory. So those will be our two general headings, the glory of Nebuchadnezzar and the glory of God. Let's start by reading the first uh, 13 verses or so of Daniel chapter 3. If you're using one of the Bibles we've provided, you can find this reading on page 739 of the Bibles provided. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plains of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces of Babylon gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that, King Neb- that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace." Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then King Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. This is God's word. If you recall, chapter 2 told about Nebuchadnezzar's bad dream. And in the dream, he saw a vision of an image or a statue, an image of the statue of exceeding brightness, and it appeared like a man. It had a head of gold, it had arms of silver. Its midsection was bronze, its legs iron, and then its feet were a mix of iron and clay. If you recall the vision, in the vision, the statue is broken and ultimately disintegrated by this supernatural stone that emerges from beneath the image or the statue. The drama of the chapter was Nebuchadnezzar's quest to find the meaning of the dream. And, if you, and in the end, only Daniel could tell him the meaning And that was only because God had revealed the dream to Daniel. Now, part of the meaning of the dream was the coming and going of human kingdoms. So Nebuchadnezzar was told his kingdom, the kingdom, the head of gold, was going to be replaced by another and then another. And then eventually, a final kingdom would come. And this was the big point of the dream. 
was that God, in the end, was going to establish a kingdom to end all kingdoms. The kingdom God would set up would destroy all these evil human kingdoms, and God's kingdom would have no end. Unlike these human kingdoms, God's kingdom would never end. That was the meaning of the dream. Nebuchadnezzar was amazed that Daniel could reveal this to him, so much so that we see that Nebuchadnezzar fell down and worshipped Daniel and praised Daniel's God as the God of gods and Lord of kings. But now as chapter 3 begins, Nebuchadnezzar is armed with the knowledge of the vision and its meaning, and he does something strange. It seems that he's not taken this vision and its meaning as a revelation of what shall be, but as a problem to be overcome. He takes the meaning of the dream as if it's an enemy's battle plan for how to defeat Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. And so now in chapter 3, he's going to attempt to make his kingdom bulletproof. He's going to fight for his image, for his glory. And he starts by making this giant golden image, probably like the one he saw in his dream. There are two components to Nebuchadnezzar's seeking of glory. First, he has to set up the image, and then he has to get all the people of his empire, people from all the provinces, to come to Babylon and to worship the image, to fall down and worship it. He gathers them there to to stand before the image, to recognize its greatness, and he gives this decree that at the sound of any music, they should fall down and worship the image. And the decree comes with a threat. Anyone who doesn't shall be liable to death by burning. They're going to be cast into a fiery furnace. So in seeking his own glory, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't really care about his people's hearts. He simply wants them to, to physically show by bowing down, by falling on their faces and worshiping that he is in control. It almost seems like what Nebuchadnezzar wants is a kind of robotic response. Like Pavlov's dog that starts drooling when he hears the bell. They hear the music, they're down on their faces, and Nebuchadnezzar is glorified. That may be one of the points of the repetition. You notice as I read, we had these same lists of things repeated and repeated about what the people did over and over again, because they were just to slavishly obey. When you hear the music, bow and glorify Nebuchadnezzar. This forced uniformity, Nebuchadnezzar believes, is the key to preventing his empire from breaking apart, like the one in the vision did. So if you recall, one of the problems, the fatal flaw, if you will, of the the vision's image was that it had feet of clay and iron, these two things that were mixed. And so they were divided, and it, it formed a brittle kingdom, a kingdom that's susceptible to breaking apart. And so Nebuchadnezzar is going to build his image out of pure gold, or at least uh, gold-coated stone or wood, but it's all of one thing. It's a monolith, and he's going to make sure that all the people of his empire are united in worshiping his image. They're united in submitting to Nebuchadnezzar's power and the power of Nebuchadnezzar's gods. Whatever local deities they worshipped, they were to put those aside for the moment and to pledge allegiance to Nebuchadnezzar and the gods of Babylon, represented by this image. One commentator argues that it's possible, perhaps likely, 
that the king in Jerusalem, who was kind of now a vassal of Nebuchadnezzar, that this, you know, this is happening between the first siege of Jerusalem and then the final destruction, that the king of Jerusalem may have been here, that Nebuchadnezzar might have ordered him to come and be part of this horde, this gathering that worships the golden image. We can see how important all this is to Nebuchadnezzar when it's pointed out that some don't worship. Right? He's filled with a furious rage that anyone disobey his orders. And he openly mocks the idea that any god would deliver such rebels from his hand. Nebuchadnezzar is seeking to have here the very glory that, begot, that belongs to God alone. Right? Isn't Nebuchadnezzar jealous like God that all the rulers and provinces of all the languages and peoples should worship him? And him alone. He's a jealous king. And he, did, he won't tolerate any disunity on this point. No rebellion. He expects his worship to be universal throughout his empire. And he expects his worship to be exclusive. That they should worship him in priority over all other gods. So they, they can't object on religious grounds, as we'll see. These people, nations, and languages wouldn't be part of Nebuchadnezzar's empire, he believes, if their gods could have saved them. So by the fact that they have been conquered by him is all the evidence he needs to know that he is, and his gods are, the most powerful in the world. And so he has set himself up as the rightful judge of all these people. Anyone who doesn't fall in line or fall on their faces is going to be thrown into his fiery furnace. This furnace, in this case, was probably something like a smelter that would have been used to, to work metal. And there would have been a way for material to be dumped in from the top and then brought out through a door at the bottom so when it needed to be worked. So Nebuchadnezzar's ambition here is for universal and total devotion to himself. But we also see that his glory is his raw power. It's symbolized by the statue, but the statue itself is worthless without the people of his empire falling down when they hear the music. So it doesn't matter to Nebuchadnezzar that this worship is ritualized or coerced. It doesn't matter that the glory can only be achieved by a threat of the fiery furnace. As long as everyone falls on their face, he has achieved his goal. He's gotten the compliance that he desires. I think this resonates with people who maybe grew up with the, the looming Soviet uh, empire in their minds. Maybe people my age and, and older. You know, we think about this totalitarian enforcing of, and policing of thoughts, right? And if anyone thinks differently, they'll be brought in for re-education, right? Which is just basically torture until you agree. Something similar is going on here in Nebuchadnezzar's world. But this is why Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these three young men from Judea, are such a problem from Nebuchadnezzar. They won't fall in line. Look at what Nebuchadnezzar does. We read this, the first part of this, verse 13. Well, let's read verses 13 through 15. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, 
lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall be immediately you shall immediately be cast into the burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Whenever Nebuchadnezzar confronts them, it may sound like he's being generous, right? He's giving them a second chance. But in reality, he's just trying to enforce compliance, right? He gives them a chance to explain themselves, but he's not offering any real forgiveness, right? It's not really generosity. It's just more efforts to get this outward conformity. The commentator Andrew Steinman points out that Nebuchadnezzar's prestige depends upon his being able to obtain obedience from everyone that he's appointed. And these three Judeans have been appointed by him to be, some, in some capacity, rulers over the province of Babylon. So the second chance he offers here is not for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's benefit. It's for Nebuchadnezzar's benefit so that he can get more glory. In his calculation, he gets more glory from their bowing down than he does by their death, but he's clearly willing to follow through on killing them. We'll talk more in a minute about Nebuchadnezzar's final question. For now, it's enough just to see that he's very confident, right? Despite what Daniel revealed to him in his dream, Nebuchadnezzar thinks there's no God more powerful than his own. And so he feels very confident to make this threat and to feel that the gods are on his side. So that's the glory of Nebuchadnezzar that he's seeking. He's seeking to replace God. He's seeking to be jealous for his own authority. And he enforces his glory-seeking with the threat of death. Now, on a superficial level, we might observe similarities between Nebuchadnezzar and God, right? They both demand universal, exclusive worship. God is also a judge, and he threatens destruction for those who rebel against him. But there's also a lot of very big differences. The chief one being that God is God, and Nebuchadnezzar is not. But better than simply saying to you that God is God, it's better to let us see God showing himself as God. Because that's what God does in the rest of the chapter. Again, when we talked about Nebuchadnezzar's glory, we said that he required the worship of the subjects, right? It was, his glory wasn't complete without their worship. And we've seen that it was a rote and robotic worship. The music played, the people hit the ground, Nebuchadnezzar got his glory. But the one true God, in contrast to Nebuchadnezzar, is not dependent on his creatures for worship and glory. So he doesn't need glory. We can't give God glory, right? When we say that we glorify God in worship, we aren't talking about something that God lacks that we give him. No, what we mean by the phrase glorify God is that God is glorious. And when we worship him, we recognize his glory. Our worship reveals that we believe what is true about God, and that God holds the proper primary place in our hearts. And we get to see how different the worship of God is from the worship of Nebuchadnezzar and how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego respond to Nebuchadnezzar's questioning, beginning in verse 16. Let's read there. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, 
O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answer Nebuchadnezzar, they reveal their worship of God. And it's clear that their worship is not rooted in a slavish, robotic fear. Right? This is not the bell ringing and they hit the ground. It's rooted in their trust in God. They were convinced in the depth of their being that their God is the living and true God and that he's good. This is the kind of worship that glorifies God. It's rooted in God's very nature, that he is good and powerful and the only God. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are responding to their glorious God with their trust. Remember that the question that Nebuchadnezzar asked them at the beginning of his speech was a factual question. Was it true that they did not bow to his image? And so to this question they say, We have no need to answer. What they mean is that they're pleading no contest to the accusation. No, they're they're guilty. They freely admit they did not bow down and worship the golden image. As faithful Israelites, they knew the Ten Commandments. And the first commandment in Exodus 23, 3 and 4 says that God forbade his people from bowing down to any image or serving him in any image. The Lord demands exclusive worship because he is the only true God. And so these three young men knew that they should have no other gods before God, and they did not worship. Now consider how different that is than what all the people were doing before Nebuchadnezzar's image, perhaps even the king of Jerusalem among them. These people were going along because Nebuchadnezzar was essentially holding a gun to their head. Right? If you don't do this, you don't show me this physical act of worship, you're in the furnace. Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they had the same gun to their head, saying, bow and worship. All the pressure is against them remaining faithful to their God. And yet, they don't try to explain away. They don't offer some excuse for why their knees were hurting that day and they couldn't bow. They don't apologize. Their allegiance to God comes from their heart. Again, if the king Zedekiah was there, it's... And the timetable is right. It's likely that he rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar just a few months after this event. Nebuchadnezzar did not have the hearts of his people. He just had their bodies on the ground. But God has their hearts. Again, this is the kind of worship that glorifies God. They're convinced that he's the one true God. There's no use in pretending that another is God. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have even more to say to us about their worship. So in verse 17, they say, If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. This is responding to that final mocking question that Nebuchadnezzar asked. Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? If you're a king who ever says this, you're just begging for God to show you who is the God who can deliver out of your hands. In Nebuchadnezzar's eyes, though, this question was closed, right? The obvious answer was, there's no God who will deliver you from my hands. In his mind, he's already defeated Jerusalem. And so he's defeated Jerusalem's God. 
So you think to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, look at the scoreboard, you know? If God was going to save you, he would have done it when I, when I brought you here. But you're here. And that's the, all the evidence I need to know that my gods are more powerful than yours. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in the face of this mockery, they have not lost faith. They stay true, and they trust that God can save them. Their trust testifies that they know their God is the God who saves people. Perhaps they knew Isaiah's prophecy that Brother Tim read for us earlier. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Whether they knew those words or not, they believed them. God's glorified when his people trust in him as Savior. Because he is the Savior. Final piece of evidence we see for their worship and their trust is their prayer. The way that ESV translates this doesn't look like a prayer. This last statement, he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But the commentator, Andrew Steinman, makes a grammatical case that that's what they're doing. They're praying. He says, the concluding thought of the Judeans in 317, while spoken to the king, contains their prayer to God. So let him save us from your hand, your majesty. That's how to understand that. So he says, they're not demanding that God save them, nor are they stating that it is a certainty that God will save them from execution. Instead, they are entrusting themselves to God's powerful hand. For he and he alone is able to save them from Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Nebuchadnezzar is desperate for his people to show him these acts of worship. But the one true God, the Savior of his people, is glorified when his people recognize that he is their good Savior, their only true God. And this God is not needy. He is generous. He gives salvation to his people. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego glorify God by living in the reality of his saving power. You see God's glory revealed. Their words send Nebuchadnezzar into a blind rage. Verse 19 says, Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That word expression translates the same Hebrew word as, as we see translated as image elsewhere. So the image of his face was changed when he confronted their faith. He's now lost all patience. But consider why he acts this way. The three Judeans' calm expression of their faith and their commitment to God hints at a crack in Nebuchadnezzar's image. See, because of their faith in God, they are not scared by Nebuchadnezzar's threat. His fiery furnace has no power over them. And this is a threat to Nebuchadnezzar's glory. It's a haunting prospect to Nebuchadnezzar, right? Because it suggests that his image of gold will not stand after all. The response that came to him when his image is threatened is blind rage. Have you ever felt enraged when something you love is threatened? Let's read his response beginning in verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. That just means heated as much as possible. 
and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the fiery furnace. So this furnace is so hot that just the men standing near the open door are killed. The three Judeans bound all their clothes on to help probably with making sure they catch fire are thrown down. Nothing was left to chance here. This is not the, the stereotype of the Bond villain who you know, sets the timer and leaves time for Bond to get away. It's not like that. Every measure was taken to ensure death. There's no possibility that they could survive. They fell bound into the fiery furnace. If we didn't know the story, we'd expect that to be the end. Here were three martyrs testifying to their God of Israel. Nebuchadnezzar didn't get their worship, but it makes, he makes it clear to all those watching on the plain of Dura that he doesn't make empty threats. He really will throw you into the furnace. So he didn't get quite the glory he wanted, but he will get the glory of being feared by his people. But then the king sees something totally unexpected. Start reading in verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of the men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar can't believe his eyes. He leaps up quickly to get a closer look. Not the typical way that ancient kings behaved. They didn't do anything quickly. And he hollers out to his henchmen, weren't there only three in there? It's interesting that Daniel does not give us a first-hand view of what happened within the fiery furnace. So Shadrach doesn't write a story about their experience. We're told of what's happening through Nebuchadnezzar's point of view, through what he recognizes. And what he sees is not three burning corpses, which he expected, but four men, unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. The fourth man in the fiery furnace is one of the great mysteries of the Bible. Nebuchadnezzar believes he's seeing some kind of divine being, a son of the gods, though in a few verses he'll call what he sees an angel. Some 
uh, Christians believe this is the manifestation of, of the Lord himself, perhaps similar to what Abraham experienced when the three visitors came to him in Genesis 18. And then many others believe it was an angel. So John Calvin's in the angel group, but you can find a lot of church fathers who are in the this is a manifestation of the Son of God group. Whether it was an angel or God himself, it's clear that the Lord was with the three men and that he miraculously protected them from harm. And in doing so, the Lord reveals himself more powerful than the seven times hot furnace of Nebuchadnezzar. The Lord shows himself as the God who is willing and able to deliver his people out of the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. And notice the contrast between the first scene of this chapter and this last. In the first scene, Nebuchadnezzar has set up his glorious golden statue. He's ordered all his, his provincial leaders to come from where they live to Babylon to command them to bow and worship. That's Nebuchadnezzar's glory enforced with the threat of this furnace. But now look at what God has orchestrated. In verse 27, we see these same officials are now gathered once again, but they're not gathered to stand before the glory of Nebuchadnezzar. They're gathered to see three miracles of God's saving work. And they see the fire had not had any power over these men, that their hair was not even singed. They've still got their eyebrows. They don't even smell like smoke. Look at how our God reveals his glory. It's not revealed in an impressive golden image. It is revealed in his merciful and powerful salvation of his people. God has set up his own image. These three Jews, who are image bearers of the living God, whom he's miraculously saved from death. And all of Babylon and all the provincial rulers are there to see what God has done. Nebuchadnezzar set up his image and he had to force people to recognize his glory. But look at God's glory. It's self-attesting. Right? These people just gather. They have to see what God has done. And we'll see Nebuchadnezzar can't help himself from recognizing what God has done. He calls God the Most High God when he calls these three men out of the furnace. The revelation of God's glory makes us sit up and wonder, what kind of God is this who is supremely powerful and perfectly good and who delivers his people? Do you know the glory of that God. Nebuchadnezzar himself becomes a witness to God's glory. In the midst of this gathering of his officials, he blesses God and he issues a new decree. That's how the chapter ends, beginning in verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own, their own god. Therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speak anything against God, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, or Abednego, shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar rehearses God's amazing and unique salvation. 
So in verse 28, he says that God sent his angel to deliver his servants. And then verse 29 ends with saying, for there, was no, for there is no other God who is able to rescue his servants in this way. Nebuchadnezzar has clearly been humbled to some extent, but there's no real evidence that his confession represents true repentance or conversion to the worship of God. It seems that Nebuchadnezzar didn't reject all his other gods. He just perhaps added God to his pantheon as the most high God. And this is a crucial thing about saving faith. Saving faith is not simply believing some true things about God. Saving faith is not just adding the one true God to your your own efforts or your own false gods. Nebuchadnezzar has not come to the point of true repentance in this chapter. But you could also ask, have I come to the point of true repentance? Have I forsaken all attempts to save myself? Have I forsaken my false gods to worship the one true God? Nebuchadnezzar doesn't show us that kind of faith, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do show it to us. And Nebuchadnezzar describes their faith for us. He said they trusted in their God, they trusted in him, and they set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. They trusted in God. And because of their trust in the Lord, they rightly disobeyed Nebuchadnezzar's command to worship his image. He can, he can recognize that now. These fellows were right to reject my command. And they were right to have these convictions so deep that they were willing to die, to give up their bodies, rather than to serve my gods. This is what true faith looks like. And this kind of faith is essential if we are going to survive in our own present evil age. By God's grace, the political situation in our country is not like Nebuchadnezzar's, right? We're not coerced to worship. Of course, there are many Christians living in places where they are forbidden from worshiping God openly. And we also recognize in our own situation, there are pressures more and more to conform to the spirit of the age. We can make a long list of ways that Christian convictions are viewed as hate speech or bigoted or just out of bounds for being in the mainstream of American culture. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego teach us how to live in such a world. Trust in the God who delivers his people. It's wonderfully simple, but it's very costly. At times it may seem that we must set aside the king's command and be willing to give up our lives and our livelihoods. We'll need wisdom for knowing how to respond. You might remember that in chapter 1, we saw that Daniel was faced with a a request to eat the king's food, and, and he took exception and asked for an exception, because he didn't want to defile himself. I noted in that chapter that Daniel did not take a kind of here I stand approach in confronting the chief of the eunuchs. He made a request, and he wisely worked within the system and asked for this test, and God showed him favor. But clearly here, the situation has changed. The command of Nebuchadnezzar was a direct contradiction to the first commandment. In essence, Nebuchadnezzar's command outlawed the worship of the one true God by requiring them to bow down to his image. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego rightly saw that they had no choice but to defy Nebuchadnezzar's command, even if it costs them their lives. So again, we need wisdom to see clearly 
When we're being asked by our government or our culture or the companies we work for to do something that would defile us or that would completely reject the worship of our God. We need, we need wisdom to see that. But I submit that we will gain that wisdom when we are clear of what God requires of us. Seek to know what God commands. Seek to know the worship that God deserves. Seek to see how he calls us to worship, trust, and obey him. So in a world like ours, if you want to survive and thrive the way Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did, we have to equip our faith with the knowledge of God's word and the knowledge of God's character. That's one reason why being part of a church like this one is so important. Because here we are taught who God is and what he commands. It's when we know God and his word that we'll have wisdom to see when we're being called to deny God. As we seek to apply this message here in Daniel chapter 3, we can't also forget the message of Daniel chapter 2, that God's kingdom is greater than all the kingdoms of this world. The coming of God's kingdom means the downfall of all these other kingdoms. And the scriptures teach that God's kingdom has already begun to come in Jesus Christ. Throughout this passage, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego foreshadow Christ in his work. So when they're asked to bow down in worship, they do not. When they were accused, they gave no answer. They were mocked by Nebuchadnezzar that no God would save them, and yet they endured. And the three men did not avoid the fiery flames, but God saved them through the fiery flames. They passed through the fire and came out, perhaps resurrected on the other side. In all these ways, they anticipate the temptation and suffering and victory of Christ. Right? So we had Michael read for us from Matthew chapter 4. What does Satan say to Jesus? Fall down and worship me. He's quoting Nebuchadnezzar, right? The God of this age would have us fall down and worship. He asked Jesus to do that very thing, but Jesus, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, quotes to him the commandment that he should have no other gods and worship God alone. Likewise, when Jesus is brought before Pilate and the chief priests, he's accused, but he gives no answer. And then later, Jesus is mocked from the cross by the chief priests and religious leaders. They say, he trusts in God. Let him deliver him now if he desires him, for he said, I am the son of God. It's kind of the same thing that Nebuchadnezzar says. Will God save you? But Jesus obeyed to the point of death. And that's one way he's different from these men in the fiery furnace. They didn't die, but Jesus did. He suffered death, but death could not hold him, and he rose from the dead. Brothers and sisters, the glory of God is revealed to us in the crucified risen and exalted Christ. Again, contrast God's glorification of himself in Christ to Nebuchadnezzar's. Nebuchadnezzar set up this golden image. God didn't do that. But God did lift up his own son on the cross. And at that moment, Christ did not appear glorious. He appeared beaten and bloodied and cursed. And yet it's through Christ's death in the place of sinners that the good and powerful God rescues sinners. 
Because Christ takes the price, pays the price our sin deserves. And we have to recognize that at root, we are all like Nebuchadnezzar, chasing after our own image. We are, we are glory thieves, as the saying goes. And because of this, we deserve death and hell. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus takes that death and hell upon himself by suffering and dying. And then he was raised from the dead and he was exalted to God's right hand where he reigns in glory. And even the exaltation of Christ is for our sake because he's there in God's throne room as our high priest and our king ruling on our behalf. So again, the glory of God is the crucified and risen Christ, the exalted son of God, the savior of sinners. It's when we come to know God by faith in Christ Christ crucified and exalted, that we come to the truth that sustains us in the face of death. So it's because we know Jesus, crucified and risen for our salvation, that we can live like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We can say, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us because he already has delivered us through faith in Jesus. He can deliver us from whatever man may do to us. Because of who Jesus is, we will not worship or serve any other God. Because there's no other God who loves us and saves us. We should be clear that this does not mean that all Christians avoid martyrdom martyrdom or death. Right? We know that most Christians do die and many have died for their faith. But it means that death is not the end. By faith in Christ, we're already raised with him. And our bodies will one day rise from their graves when Christ returns. And so we see here, by faith in Christ, we're part of this kingdom. The kingdom that Daniel 2 prophesied would come and destroy all the kingdoms of the earth. You can start to see how this happens even in the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're standing here in powerful Nebuchadnezzar's presence, proving that he can't force anyone really to worship him. His glory is vain and it's thin and vanishing. It's already rotting from the inside out. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's faith is, is testifying to its vanity. It's, they are testifying to the kingdom that's coming that will have no end. The kingdom set up by the living God himself. By bringing them out of the fiery furnace unharmed, God himself shows Nebuchadnezzar that there is a God greater than Nebuchadnezzar. Brothers and sisters, I hope you see that God has put us on earth to bear witness to the kingdoms of this age that there is a greater kingdom. We stand here as those like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who have been raised from the dead by God's power and grace. We testify that Jesus has broken the power of sin and death by dying on the cross and rising again from the dead. That's why our Sunday school class this morning was so important. One of the most countercultural things we can do in this world obsessed with its own glory is to become members of a local church where together we testify of God's kingdom, where we do things God's way by faith in God's Son, and we reject the ways of sin and death that Nebuchadnezzar displayed, the glory-stealing ways of Nebuchadnezzar. We testify that even though the powers of this world will will keep seeking their own glory, they'll keep trying to coerce people to worship, we testify that by faith in God's goodness, 
there is a way to turn away, to escape from the powers of this world. We testify to our neighbors that the threats and the promises that this age makes, they're finally empty threats. You don't have to live for your money or your reputation, right? Even though like Nebuchadnezzar, don't our false gods threaten us? If you give me up, you'll be sorry. You'll be poor and insecure and weak. Our false gods only can rule by their threats. But Jesus puts the lie to their threats. And as a church, we testify that there is a good God in heaven revealed to us in Christ. And we can know him. People can be saved by him. And they can worship him with such devotion that we do not fear what man can do to us. We testify that sin and death are enslaving, but we need not live under the bondage of sin and death. By faith, we testify to Jesus, who delivers his people from the fire. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the example of these brothers of ours, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Thank you for their example of faith in the living God and you who saves. We pray, Father, that we would be the church you've called us to be by faith in Christ who saved us. We pray that through our unity in the gospel, that we would testify to the goodness and power of your kingdom that we would be a testimony to our neighbors that there is salvation from sin and that they need not remain in their darkness and bondage. We thank you for the glory that is revealed in Christ. And we thank you that, that one day we will be like him when we see him. We pray, Jesus, you will come quickly. In your name we pray, amen.